0: Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everyone. Before I introduce the guests for today, please check out my new webinars. You can go to my website, rachelbernsteintherapy.com, and the first webinar series that I am doing is for former cult members, but also for anyone who wants to learn about their experience and what helps them heal, and for their families and friends also if they want to participate and learn about their loved one's experiences. And then the second webinar series is going to be for the families and friends, spouses, anyone else who cares about someone who is in a controlled situation of any kind where they're trying to intervene or they have tried and it's failed, or they don't know how to start, or communication has gotten impossible. And so there's going to be a lot of ideas for you and ways to try things in a different way to see if you can have more success and ways also to address your own feelings, because it's a very powerless feeling when you have your loved one in something you can't help them get out of. At least you think you can't help them get out of it. And... Also, if you have a chance to go to patreon.com slash indoctrination to support the show, very much appreciated, very much needed. Our show exists because of wonderful supporters who keep it on the air, and we need to keep it going. So thank you so much. Today on the show, we have Heidi Thompson. Heidi Thompson was born into the Seventh-day Adventist apocalyptic religion. She escaped at age 19 to attend college at the University of North Texas, where she completed her bachelor's and master's degrees. While in graduate school, she learned about a spiritual organization called the Rudra Center for Enlightened Awareness. She began attending their sweat lodges, meditation, and shamanic psychology classes. She soon became part of the inner circle and was eventually introduced to its parent organization called the Deer Tribe Medicine Society. After her recruitment into the Deer Tribe, Heidi became actively involved in their sacred sexuality workshop called Quodushka. Quodushka claims to teach people that sex is natural, sacred, and beautiful. Heidi was told that these workshops would help her heal from sexual trauma. However, while attending these workshops, she was manipulated into doing many perverse and corrupt sexual activities she did not want to do. These experiences left her deeply traumatized. And in early 2022, Heidi decided to speak out to the community about her experiences. Immediately, former participants began writing to her about their own stories of sexual exploitation and manipulation at these Quodusha sex workshops and other Deer Tribe events. And by the way, this isn't an actual tribe. This is not a Native American tribe. It's just the name they go by. She hopes that by speaking out publicly... It will help others avoid and walk away from destructive, high-control groups. Today, she is recovering and rebuilding her life with her husband. And here is Heidi now. I am so happy to have Heidi with me today. It is really nice to talk to you, to meet you. I talk to a lot of people who will come to my office or who are now meeting me online, who are on the podcast, who come to my former cult member support group, where it is the first time they're talking about it. And it can be different from other subjects because so often they're coming out of situations where they were supposed to keep things secret, where they're not supposed to tell the stories, or they have been made to feel fearful about how their story would be received, if they would be believed, if they would be judged, or they've already had bad experiences by trying to talk to people and people not getting it or it being turned back on them that somehow there's something wrong with them that they got involved or they believed it. So things have just not gone well in the past. So I give people a lot of credit for just talking for just saying it and for being able to say I have the right to say it and my goal in doing this show among other things is to help people hear it in the way that they I think they should which is to put the blame on the on the right person not on the wrong person not on the victim in the story and for you to be able to say this is what happened to me and also this is what can happen sort of a cautionary tale for other people listening to do education and prevention. So I really value you being able to step into those shoes today and being able to talk about your experience. So if you don't mind taking a few moments and introducing yourself and talking a little bit about you now, and then we'll go back into your history.
1: Well, my name is Heidi Thompson. I'm 36 years old and I I kind of feel like I'm starting my life for the first time. I was born in Texas and grew up there. And that's where I got married and met my husband. And we recently relocated to the Pacific Northwest, which is where I've always wanted to live. I love the nature and I love the climate. So we're kind of just rebuilding our lives, sort of gave up a career. And so now I'm stepping into that and my husband's sort of doing the same. And um, we're just keeping it really simple. We just are trying to figure things out.
0: Okay. Keeping it simple. I'm sure that's just a really lovely thing and a nice departure from the experiences that you've been in. And one of the things that I talk to a lot of people about dealing with what people might consider to be boring, but that it really is just being relaxed and having things feel okay and that things don't have to have a certain intensity. And so how nice it is to be able to kind of have a relaxed heart rate and sit back and enjoy, look out the window and notice the nature all around you. So I'm happy, really happy that you're getting to have that now.
1: So then where would you like to begin your story? I feel like, My story really begins when I was born because I was born into a religious cult. And so, you know, that was not my choice. The religion was called Seventh-day Adventist, and my grandfather was actually a minister. So while I did know some people in this religion that didn't have as extreme of an experience as me, just in my lineage, it was deeply dogmatic And for people who don't know a lot about the religion, there was an apocalyptic slant to it. And so, from a very young age, probably age three or four, like my nightly bedtime stories were around the world, like, could end tomorrow. My mom would tell me about all the signs that would happen, and they would be like, earthquakes or tornadoes or inflation or, you know, monsoons, hurricanes, natural disasters was showing that God was angry at us. And as a result of that, there was going to be a law passed that made Sunday the official day of worship. And for Seventh-day Adventists who worship on Saturday, that's very, very important to them. And so You know, I was told anyone who went to church on Sunday was potentially satanic. And we, as the like elite chosen people who were the only ones worshiping God correctly, um, we would be hunted down and tortured and potentially killed. And I'm four years old hearing this. Oh, wow. You would be hunted down and killed if you did what? If we didn't comply with the Sunday law. Okay.
0: Wow. Okay. That is quite intense and terrifying.
1: Yeah. I mean, I remember like, you know, just the news would be on and a news bulletin would come on and my heart, I would just go into panic wondering if that's it. Or my mom would be like, you know, I mean, it it could potentially happen tomorrow or this weekend. And, you know, I was told like, you'll, you'll have to leave your cats and you'll have to leave your home. And that's just kind of how my whole reality was shaped for me.
0: Okay. Right. So going back to you saying that you're resting. Okay. (laughs) Okay. I'm so glad even more so after hearing this that with the intensity that you were raised with, but yes, with that panic, with The adrenaline release, being in fear, looking over your shoulder, never knowing if what's there today is going to be there tomorrow, or if you were going to get punished for something that you did and things also being given a certain interpretation and all being seen as a sign. So it sounds... Like I would group you then with a lot of people I've talked to who were raised in these kinds of environments, whether it's within this group or others similar to it that have this sort of end times way of prophesizing. that it's very hard, especially for those kids to feel like they can really be in a restful state. It's hard to sleep. It's hard to relax. You always have to be mindful. You have to be careful. You have to be worried, actually. Did you find that that was a pretty normal state that you were in?
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm. I'm still having to to teach myself how to relax.
0: Right, right. I'm sure.
1: And it affects different people in different ways. But at
0: a young age, you're going to be trained to have your wiring be that way, and you're having to untrain it. All right. So bedtime stories. Yeah, really lovely and <laughs> relaxing. <laughs> um, so sorry. So then
1: what from there? I feel like I was more fortunate than others because I actually got to go to public school, which was more rare. And so I had a wonderful experience at school. I had wonderful teachers and it was really stimulating. And I'm really, really grateful for that. At the same time, I also felt this sense of separation from everyone because we had a lot of violence and incest in our home as well. And so as I was growing up, I just knew something was off about my family and it made me very, very sad like just grieving, sad. And I thought something was wrong with me because I I couldn't understand why I was born into this situation. I mean, I just remember thinking that as a child, like why was I born into this really weird family and group? And I just remember wishing that I could trade lives with other people, you know, like I could go live in their house with their family because I just felt they were so lucky. Like, I, I don't think I ever believed any of it, even though it terrified me. And I think that was kind of programmed into me, but I never really believed any of it, but I felt like I wish that I didn't know about the possibility.
0: Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. So interesting though, about your family and how it operated and in a way with so much dysfunction and in danger. And endangerment and emotional endangerment, emotional neglect too, is people are then not really taken care of in those environments. Was there more that you wanted to say about that? About just your family system itself?
1: I don't know. I'm still, I'm still sorting out a lot of it. I think it was just, it was just a really traumatic upbringing and just layers. You know, there was the religious cult thing, and there was the domestic violence thing, and then my younger brother was being sexually abused by our mother, you know, and I'm pretty sure she has, obviously I'm not a therapist, but I'm sure she has mental illness. I don't think she's an evil person. I think she was also a victim as a child. So it's just, um, just just to kind of segue, I, I did manage to escape when I was 19. And I, I do say escape. I mean, I wasn't being held physically captive, but it's just having having to break free from this world and not having any support on how to get to a different life. But I managed to do it. And I went to college and I was just so unprepared for the world. I just felt like I was so sheltered. I mean, I didn't know who the Beatles were. I remember people would like, people would look at me like, like, did you grow up under a rock? Because Normal things about culture I wasn't aware of because you know we weren't. Another thing about Seventh Day Adventists is very you know you can't listen to rock music and you can't wear jewelry and you can't you know read fiction or watch movies or. And my mom was in high school; she was so strict she wouldn't let me out of the house, and so I just didn't have any opportunity to socialize or make friends or just you know learn how to be an adult interacting with other people. So when I went to college, I just felt really lost, and. I ended up getting into a very abusive relationship for a few years, which just, it was my whole life. And so again, the friends I made, I once again became isolated from. So I tell this part of the story because by the time I was in my mid-20s, I was just, I had so much PTSD and depression and I just I had so much hope, like for my whole life, I kept hoping, like I can get through this. I can get out of it. I can be free. I can really make something of myself. And I was just so miserable and I didn't, I didn't know what to do. And then when I left that abusive relationship, I, you know, I didn't have family support and he had isolated me from all my friends. So, I mean, I was just, I was all alone. And I think that was the hardest part more than the relationship itself was the aftermath of trying to heal from that without any kind of support. And I didn't know about therapy. I didn't know about resources that might've been available to me. So I kind of just suffered through it alone for a while. Okay. A couple of things about that. First of all,
0: it's incredible to hear about what you lived through, even before we get into the story (laughs) you're going to be telling us, which is the next part, but just thinking about going from out of the frying pan into the fire, but just over and over. And it doesn't surprise me that you were then in an abusive relationship, and I'm I'm sorry that you were. It doesn't, but you know, it often is how things go. And the idea also of you dealing with PTSD and depression—was there something in your upbringing that taught you about how? that was your fault or you brought it on or that was a punishment for you. I mean, there are a lot of people who don't seek help because they blame themselves or they're taught to see it as weakness or to ignore their feelings. I'm just wondering how your childhood teachings impacted your emotional self when you were in your twenties.
1: Yeah. My mom liked to paint herself as the victim. She was the ultimate victim. Everyone was hurting her. I think that depression and PTSD mostly came from the sexual trauma I had from that relationship. I think I was so ashamed and so humiliated. It was too hard. Like I even went to a therapist, I think one time and I couldn't even tell them what happened to me. I was so ashamed. The only thing I can relate back to childhood is that, and this, this will be relevant to my, my later story, but just sex was so, um, like taught like it was really bad. Like pleasure's bad. sex is bad. The only appropriate sex is like for procreation after marriage. But then at the same time, my mom would put on these. They're like they're probably like they probably should be rated R, but they were like reenactments of different Bible stories, but very much for an adult audience. And there would be very graphic rape scenes in there. And I'm like, you know, five, six, seven, eight, nine years old watching these. So I just think it was so confusing. And then my younger brother who was being abused was physically abusing me. So I just feel like everything just became, I just feel like I didn't have a sense of self or any sense of boundaries. And I mean, it just like, I'm baffled by it now. Like, how could you not know that that's not okay? But I didn't understand that. I was just so confused. I just didn't understand like what I had a right to, like, I didn't understand that.
0: Oh, absolutely. The question, how could you not know? Well, of course you wouldn't know. How could you know? So, if we look at it that way, you weren't given the benefit of being able to have a guide or a model for boundary setting for what is appropriate, what's not. And even in terms of child development, what children should be exposed to, um, what is okay to have happen to their body or not, what's okay for them to be watching. Or not. What's also interesting too is that a lot of times when people go into situations where they're then being abused because they were raised not really knowing about what's okay and what should be happening and what shouldn't be happening, but also if it's okay to say no and if it's okay to speak up, or if you're being rude or you're being abusive by saying no, and you don't even quite know how to engage to protect yourself. And if you're allowed to do that, I mean, that's a whole other piece that happens where you're, you're kind of handicapped in that way. Because I think a lot of, especially, I mean, I won't say this only about girls, but especially girls are often taught to not raise their voice and to, and to not say no. And so then you really are not able to, you're not able to set that kind of standard within the relationship where the other person knows what's allowed and what's not.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay. And then also that you felt too ashamed to talk to a therapist, which is very common too, even though you weren't the one doing something wrong. But I'm wondering what you were afraid of. What did you think would happen if you told your therapist?
1: I think I was so ashamed at my body response, like my physical response. I felt like there was something wrong with my body. I didn't under I didn't understand the trauma response at that time. I mean, I still I still feel the shame actually talking about it today a little bit, and um, I just felt like I didn't know anyone who had gone through what I'd gone through, and I just felt so abnormal, and I didn't want to be abnormal. I just wanted to be a normal person that hadn't had those experiences and that was able to function and be in a healthy relationship. You know, I also had like a lot of financial challenges, so I just didn't even have the resources to invest in that. Or That's what I told myself at the time. Eventually I ended up going to my college had like a, a counseling center for PhD students. So I did end up talking to someone at the time, but the thing that I think made it hard for me is that it the agreement had to be like, my our sessions had to be videotaped. And then, so they would only show like two to three minute clips, like with their professors as part of their training. But I think like the level of trauma I was dealing with, that probably wasn't the best type of counseling for me, <laughs>
0: you know? Right. Right. I mean, I understand there are places that do, do that as part of training. And so you probably had interns who you were working with or were in school. Yeah. But I also understand you not wanting to be filmed. And even if you gave your consent, it still doesn't feel comfortable, Uh, especially if it's hard for you to even tell the story. You don't want someone else to be hearing it, someone else who you don't know and you haven't met with. Right. So that certainly was going to be a barrier. What I do want to say, though, in a positive way is that you were seeking out counseling. So that says something about something innately in you where you wanted to be better and you wanted to feel better. Knowing how daunting that was still, I give you a lot of credit for even attempting it. All right. So then what happened from then?
1: I graduated and then I started a master's degree program and I started making friends. I started like getting involved in my community and I had an amazing group of friends. And so I started, I started thinking life was going to get better. But, you know, it kind of comes in waves, right? And so I started another relationship with this man I just fell in love with, but we had a lot of problems. And then as our relationship was breaking up, it was kind of all my old traumas were resurfacing. And I actually did see, eventually I did see an actual therapist for about a year. And it was sort of at the end of that time that I had a friend tell me I was taking a a course in indigenous studies in my master's program. And I got really interested in like, spirituality and more different cultures. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I just was getting really fascinated by it. And so a friend told me that there was what she called a native American sweat lodge right here in Denton, Texas. That's where I went to college in Denton. And she's like, there's this, you know, and I've gone and it's amazing. And I was so intrigued and I found out where it was and it was I mean, the center is just beautiful. It's right in the middle of downtown and it has these sort of like Japanese style buildings and Zen gardens. And, you know, there's a yoga center there and there's a meditation room and there are apartments and nutritionists, and a little spa. And it's, I had walked by that place for seven years and I never got inside. And then after my friend told me about this, I, I just, something said, oh my gosh, that sounds really amazing. I'd love to have that kind of experience or I want to go check it out. And so I, um, one day I I was actually walking back from my therapy session, which was right down the street. And I decided just to go inside and ask about this sweat lodge ceremony. I remember I, I was kind of embarrassed to ask about it. So I started asking about like, well, what do you do here? And I talked to the massage therapist and I just said, well, I heard about, someone told me you guys do a sweat lodge and his whole, just his whole demeanor changed. And he had this like dreamy look on his face. I mean, like just snapped and he was just like, oh, and he just had this huge smile on his face. And he said, yeah, he said, this is an amazing ceremony that will give you physical, emotional, mental, spiritual, and sexual healing. (laughs) I was like, I want to go to that. (laughs) So he said the next one was in two weeks and he told me how I needed to prepare Um, He says, we have a potluck afterwards to bring a, bring a dish and bring some towels. And, you know, you're not supposed to do any drugs or drink any alcohol for 24 hours. So I went home and I told the guy I was dating and a couple of my friends and we all decided, oh, let's go do this together. What's funny is the day that we were actually supposed to go, everyone decided not to go. So I went by myself and um, that was the beginning of this whole journey. Okay.
0: Okay. So you went by yourself. So what was it like?
1: it was one of the most amazing experiences I've ever had. You know, I went and, you know, the center is beautiful. The gardens are beautiful. There was just this energy there. I was really, impa- I'm, a, I'm a very impatient person. So I I got there and everyone was just taking their time and they're creating the lodge together. Like we're all, we're building the fire together and we're creating it and everyone's just laughing and having fun. And everyone just seems like Just so loving and friendly and good-natured and very, very friendly and very welcoming. I remember like asking like, okay, like I thought this would be like a couple hours. And then they're like, no, you just got to get out of time frame. Like we're in ceremony, you know, you're probably going to be here till like midnight. And I was like, oh, okay. So for people who don't know what a sweat lodge is, it's like, um, it's made out of willow trees and it's like a dome shaped structure on the ground. Well, there's many different types of sweat lodges, but in the tradition we were doing and there's a pit inside the lodge. And so what happens is we cover it with blankets and just so much paraphernalia and decor and everything. And there's a fire pit outside. And so people heat up rocks and they bring the rocks into the sweat lodge and then they pour water on and we're in there for probably about an hour to an hour and a half. It was just this progression of events. Like we all lit the fire together and there was a drum and we sang to the fire. And I mean, it seems like really odd, but it just, it just felt so beautiful to me at that time. And then we all go inside, they had a dojo and that's where we all sat in a circle and the leader's name was Silver and he gave a teaching and he gave this teaching about pain and about how, you know, we all experience pain in life and we can't get away from pain, but we do have, we all have free will and we are all healers and that we can actually heal ourselves, and we can actually give away the pain we have experienced and we can be happier. And it was just this, I mean, I was just eating it all up.
0: (laughs) Of course, I can't imagine a more appealing message for you.
1: Yeah. It just felt like serendipitous, you know? And so everything is just done in this very ceremonial way, and very loving and very gentle. And so we're all um, we all go in this sweat lodge, and it's done in this very prescribed fashion. And then the rocks start coming in, and he's pouring water, and then he's calling to the elements and these different spiritual energies and the grandmothers and the grandfathers. I mean, it's it's um, the ceremony in, in itself. I still find it really beautiful and really honoring. What was really funny though, backing up in the talk before we went in there, he talked about there being prayer rounds and I got super triggered because I, I don't pray. I am like, I, I hated all that stuff. And I just remember telling myself, okay, just like, this is like the complete opposite of your religious experience. So just give this a chance. And so, you know, we went in there and we had these prayer rounds and the first round you pray for yourself and the second round you pray for others. And then the third round is the giveaway round. And that's when you give away your pain, your anger, your self-doubt, like whatever it is. And then we have a gratitude where we we express our gratitude and then we come out and then we, um, they use a, a pipe, a medicine pipe. And so we close out the pipe in a ceremonial way. And then we all have our potluck feast and then we all stay and we help clean up the place together and put it back to order. And then that's it. And, um, you know, I went through this experience and the next morning, just everything seemed different about life. I felt different. The colors seemed brighter. I felt relaxed, you know, and I just decided I wanted to come back. And so, and they offered them every month. And so I started coming back every single month. Eventually I started learning about the other offerings they had. So they have a we called it the Wednesday night class. And it was like a shamanic psychology class. And so I started going to that. That's when I found out that the, the sweat lodge and a lot of these teachings are actually part of an organization called the Deer Tribe, the Deer Tribe Métis Medicine Society, or the Deer Tribe for short. I went online and I looked them up. And what's really funny, one of the first things that I looked up is they were calling it a cult and they were actually calling it a sex cult. But I went to their website and they had this book and they called it The Sexual Practices of Kodoshka. And it was by this woman named named Amara Charles. And this is what really, I think, helped me solidify my decision to get involved in this group because they, on their webpage, they talked about how like sexuality is sacred and it's healthy and like all these positive things and I thought oh my gosh there is a spiritual path that like honors sexuality which was so opposite so I just felt like that was a sign that oh my gosh maybe this is maybe this is where I'm going to get my healing
0: okay okay interesting also to jump in that here you looked it up which is really smart and you found something that said it was a cult and You then also found something that I think countered whatever doubts were brought up in you by noticing that it was a cult, because I think of how injured you were and how much healing you were needing in a very specific way. And it could offer you that. There are a lot of people who will say, How come I? kept going with something, even though I knew that something was off about it. And often it's because they think they're getting something here that they've been desperately needing or that they can't get anywhere else. Sometimes also when things uh, I've noticed, when things are presented by a woman, it feels safer. And so there are women who will lower their defenses and think that that means that it's going to be done in this sort of gentle, very kind of kind, knowing way. Doesn't necessarily mean that that's how it's going to play out. Okay. You were intrigued. You saw the book. You thought, okay, this is really going to help me. And so then what'd you do next?
1: I ordered the book. The one thing I will say to you about it is even though like I saw online, someone was calling it a cult my experiences with the group had been so positive. I just thought, okay, well, I feel really good about this. Also, you know, I knew like really nothing about sexuality. Like in addition to all the false and disempowering information I was taught by my church, I grew up in Texas where there was no sexual education. So I was like just completely open. I'm like, okay, someone needs to teach me. So I ordered this book and I read the book. I had been with this group for about six months, and what happened was I started working my way into the inner circle. So Silver had, I mean, I call it an inner circle, and it's kind of like his prime group of students who are just fully involved. So what happens at the center is um, you can actually rent an apartment there. We didn't call it that, but I've heard the term like conscious community, and that's definitely what we were. Most of the people who rented rooms or apartments there were involved. In the group, and Silver was the spiritual teacher. That's what I called him. He was my spiritual teacher. I just kept going and getting more and more involved. And then eventually, I traveled out to Arizona in the group and I went to their Sundance ceremony, which is a 10 day event out in the desert. We have this big dance out in the desert for like 20 hours a day, three days in a row. We do multiple sweats. I went a year and a half after I started. Participating in this group. And the reason I went is because about six months into my time with them, everyone in the group went except me. And I remember they all came back with this like fire and this energy, and just like they were just raving about it. Like, this is the most incredible experience. And I saw them come back with all this energy, you know, like we talked about energy a lot. And so I was like, okay, I'm definitely going next year. And it was made out like, yeah, you go and you dance your dance your prayers to the tree and it's kind of like you can dance for a new career and how, like whatever you want, like, you know, and of course, like if you dance for healing and the healing of the planet, like that's always interwoven into everything. So there's like, we're doing really amazing things for the planet. We're healing the planet. We are spiritual light warriors, but then there's also this like element of personal growth and abundance and health and stuff. So, I mean, like it all just seems like really good things. And this was the pathway to do it. And so when I went to Sundance for the first time, that's when I really got to know the Deer Tribe organization because the Deer Tribe is kind of like they have different affiliate groups all around the world. So Silver was one of the affiliate groups. So it's kind of like a pyramid, you know? And so I got got to meet all these people and I met Amara Charles. Uh The author, right. Yeah, wow. And, you know, I just, was so naive back then. I just assumed that because I was having positive experiences with my group in Denton who went to this Sundance with the deer tribe, I just assumed that anyone who came to this Sundance was going to be a good person. Right. And so I just started talking to people and I was really suffering from sexual trauma. So I was asking like, well, what, what part of this path and this medicine can help me? And so everyone's like, you need to go to a which is their sacred sexuality workshop. And so I met Amara there. Amara had a colleague who was also a Kodoshka teacher called Muki. And they told me that I should come to a Kodoshka workshop because that would heal, help me heal my sexual trauma. And so I ended up meeting my my husband, Brett, who was actually at the very first sweat lodge I went to. He was there. And we ended up starting a relationship together. And so several months after I went to the Sundance, we drove to Phoenix and we went to a Kodoshka. And that was kind of the beginning of the end for me. Although I did not realize it for about seven years.
0: You didn't realize what for seven years?
1: I didn't realize that Kodoshka was actually harming me. Okay. I'm going to talk a lot about it, but I didn't realize how unethical it is and exploitative it, it is, there are doctors who are part of the Deer Tribe and therapists and people who work at universities. I mean, professional, brilliant, intelligent people. So contrary to what these Kudoshka teachers like Amar and Muki were telling me, Kudoshka is actually not good for people suffering from sexual trauma. A therapist I spoke to who's still part of this organization, I spoke with him recently, actually said, so no, people need to be screened for sexual trauma before enrolling them in these events. So I just, I got caught up in this world and I just was on this slow decline for about seven years. And that's what I, that's what I meant when I say, I didn't realize, I didn't realize it. I thought it was me. And did they tell you it was you also? Is
0: that why you thought it was you?
1: Yeah. So the culture is that, um, Silver used to say everything works if you do. So They're very covert and subtle because a lot of their language, like they like honor all paths that lead to the light. They say, like at the beginning of every workshop, it's like, don't believe anything we say, question everything. But the culture and the subtle languaging and the attitudes of the people who are above you, because it's very hierarchical. It's their gateway process. The further you are in their process, The higher a rende, they make up all these words, the higher rende you have, the higher energy, the more mature you are, the more wise you are. So, you know, we're kind of conditioned to sort of submit to the authority and all they have to do is say the words, like, this is the medicine, this is how it works. And it's nothing's ever wrong with the medicine. So if you're not getting a result, it must be you. The tools are never questioned.
0: Never, which is always how it is. And just this phrase, everything works if you do. What? I mean, that makes sense. it's First of all, no. But also it does blame the victim. And it does make you think that if it's not working, you're not working hard enough. Or you're not working it right. Which is absolutely a way to transfer any kind of responsibility. So you were on this steady decline for seven years. So let's talk about what this program was like and why it did this to you.
1: So Brett and I rented a car. And what's really interesting is about 30 minutes into our drive from North Texas to Phoenix, I started getting really sick and I don't get sick that often, but it just like hit me and just like, I mean, I feel like I was coming down with a really significant flu and hindsight, it's almost like my body knew don't go to this. And I just remember like my whole process was cause this was like, this was it for me. This was like the last, this was like my, the last thing I knew, like if this didn't work. Right, right. You know, I so the stakes were high for me. And I just remember my whole focus was around how am I going to be able to go to this if I'm feeling ill? You know, I, I was so hard on myself. I put so much pressure on myself. Anyways, by the time I got there, I was feeling a lot better. And, you know, like, you know, silver had always framed, like when you're at your edge, like this kind of stuff is going to come up. And so I just thought, oh, you know, I'm just at my edge. And this is just my fear. And, you know, like this is what I'm being taught on an almost daily basis by that point. Cause you know, I'm, I'm going to his classes four or five times a week. So we arrive in Phoenix, we're staying at a house. We drive to the events and it's just at this like gorgeous house, like million dollar home. It's beautiful. It's stunning. The lighting is perfect. It's just exquisite how it is. And they have the furniture range. So there's this, um, the teachers will sit on kind of this curved tap couch at the front of the room. And they have these like beautifully colored Pendleton blankets covering it. And then, you know, we're all gathered in the area, but it starts off with just a meet and greet and we're meeting the staff. And, you know, you could tell a lot of the participants are, you know, nervous, right? We're going to a sex workshop, but it seems pretty easy. And so we meet some people and then we find our seats and then the evening starts with drumming and singing. We're playing a drum and we're singing a song, and then the teachers get up and they're standing, and I remember Amara gets up, and I remember one of the first things she said, like, okay, welcome to Kudoshka." and I just want to let you know, if if you're here for the dancing, we start the music at 8.30, or it starts at like 9 a.m., so just make sure you're here on time, because apparently people just come for their, I'll, I'll get into that in a minute, but just the dancing that they do. And, um, you know, they're full of smiles and then we, they do a little bit of an introduction and they kind of go over the agreements of the weekend. Not a lot have, not hardly anything had to do with like consent or boundaries, by the way, <sighs> then they do a pipe ceremony. So they get out their medicine pipe. What I've learned since then, it's a very altering experience. It takes about 30 minutes and we're all sitting completely still. You're not supposed to get up or drink water, or anything like that. And they're just calling, again, like the sweat lodge, they're calling to the powers. They even use a different language. They use Mayan, the Mayan language. So like, you know, we don't know what this means since so I've learned that, you know, this can create boredom or maybe you're really mesmerized by it, but it's just like slowly lowering our defenses, right? We're just kind of getting into this very trance altered state. And the evening lasts, it starts from at like seven o'clock at night. It goes on till about midnight. And so, you know, it's late and we've been traveling. We did not, not a lot happened that night, but they explained the, the layout of the weekend. And so the next morning we're told, okay, you're going to come dress in what these, what they call lovers masks. So we had to bring all these like sexy clothing and they had different themes. So on Friday morning, the dancing is going to start and you're going to come like as your adventure explorer. So they're like, you could come dressed as a scuba diver or like a cowboy or whatever. I'm like, okay. So um, we arrive the next morning and they have this dance floor. And then I'm like surprised to see like, oh, there's like a lot of naked people, (laughs) you know, because I wasn't told that there was going to be nudity. Although some people were like, well, of course there's going to be nudity. What do you expect? It's like, well, you think that they would tell you. Right.
0: You think they would tell you, especially when they told you to come in a certain kind of costume. Yeah. That means clothing. Yeah. Yeah. I'm um, also just before you continue, what was in that pipe as part of that ceremony? Just tobacco. Oh, okay.
1: Yeah. What's really interesting is that all their events, um, there's no drug or alcohol okay. use. So yeah. Got it. Okay. All right. Just with... Was- Curious. Yeah. No, it's a great question.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Why not find out? Okay. So the, so you show up and there are people who are not wearing anything at all and you were surprised. And they said, of course, like somehow you would have figured that.
1: Yeah. Well, let me, let me rephrase it. Like they were wearing stuff, but like they're, you know, like a one woman was wearing like a see-through blouse and no bottoms. Yeah. But pretty much nothing. Definitely. Not everyone, but definitely some people and the people who tend to be regulars to these events or the staff tend to start out a little bit more revealing than others. And I just like, you know, I brought, you know, what I thought were some sexy clothes, but like nothing that would reveal anything. So I was like, wow, I'm, (laughs) I was like, okay. So um, I was actually surprised at how much fun I had in the dancing. Right. But I mean, you know, the music's going and we're dancing for about 30 minutes. And then we all gather in. So the format of the weekend is there's usually dancing and then teachings and then a demo of an exercise. And then we are sent off to do exercises with our partners. So you can go with your partner. Like if you have a relationship partner in real life, you can go with your partner. But if you don't have a partner, you can go And what they do is they just randomly assign you partners per exercise throughout the week. And I just remember, you know, I was not told how sexual this was going to be. And I just remember like Brett, who's my husband now, but at the time he wasn't sure if he wanted to go. He only went because I really wanted to go. And so I was actually going to go by myself. And I just remember being shocked that, like, I just remember being so grateful he was there with me because I just remember like going into panic, like, oh my God, I could have been here by myself. And I would have had to do these things with like random men. I didn't even know. And quickly on Friday, it took a turn. So like by noon, we have lunch and we come back after lunch. And then one of the assistants is just sitting there naked at the front of the room. So that was like the first big like, okay, so this person's naked and then they do this, like, okay, we're going to teach you how to balance each other's chakras with your fingers. And they, you know, just kind of weird stuff. And it's like, this is going to help you get your masculine and feminine energies in balance. the, The deer tribe talks a lot about being balanced and being a balanced human being. So all these things are helping you be balanced. We did like, um, the group exercise, like sometimes you just sort of like do a skit. They, they like to have all these different themes. Like, um, I I'd have to go into deer tribe teachings, but just like different themes that don't really make a lot of sense, but, but they'll give you a teaching. They're like, okay, now act it out in front of the group and everything, you know, make sure you make it sexy and like put a sexual theme on it. And so, um, it seems kind of like, you know, mild up until then, but then Friday night we go to dinner, we come back from dinner and that's when we do this body resculpting exercise. It involves both partners being nude and they say that it's going to be taking trauma and pain tapes out of your cell out of your cells out of your body out of your muscles. And so it's like this a very specific type of massaging that like involves kneading and then like kind of like karate chopping and like all these little motions that you do with your partner. That really horrified me again, because all I could think is like, I was going to be going to this by myself. And I was just surprised. I was just so surprised at how just these people don't know what they're getting into. And just fast forwarding it when I've, I've talked to so many people since then who felt so uncomfortable and just said, you know, I did so many things I didn't want to do. I felt very pressured by staff. There isn't an open freedom to change partners. So what if you, you they pair you up with someone and you just feel, I mean, it's not that you can't go and say, Hey, I want a different partner, but everyone else is partnered up by then. And there's just this pressure to go along with the group and everything happens so fast. And they move you from activity to activity to activity that like, I ended up going to Kodoshka's later. And I actually ended up training as an assistant and there's not time for like self-reflection or to check in with yourself. And you know, despite what they say, I've been like, I've been grabbed so many times on the dance floor. Like they're like, okay, like they're, they're teaching on consent is ask before you touch someone. And that's pretty much it. Which not everyone follows, not even the staff at times, you know, I was touched by staff without, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself, but I'm just trying to like paint the picture. Cause this first, what's so funny is I was not having a good time and I had completely forgotten about, I mean, this happened seven years ago and it wasn't until I was Brett and I have been talking um, a lot about these, like, you know, when you talked about secrecy at the beginning, like him and I didn't even talk to each other about this for years. And it's only been in the past couple of months that we've started talking. And I remember like, I just hit me. I'm like, I did not have a good time at that first Kodoshka, did I? And he said, no, you didn't. He said, you were just stressed the entire time.
0: That's so interesting. What I think is very interesting is that a lot of people have that kind of recollection that what they wanted it to be wasn't what it was, but they were still holding out hope that it was going to be at some point or they needed to kind of abandon their resistance to it and then they would get something from it or maybe they were still getting over their trauma and that's why they're having that. You know, There are so many sort of internal justifications why you just sort of let something happen that turns out to not be as it was billed or promised and that you're not feeling like you thought you were going to. And I think sometimes also people are not ready for that sense of disappointment and they're hoping if they just hang in there... It'll start to feel better or feel right.
1: Everyone around me just seemed to be having, like they talk about like, oh my gosh, I'm having these breakthroughs. I'm having these healings. I remember calling Silver on the phone and crying to him because I'm like, I'm not getting healing from this. Like I am really distressed. And I just remember him saying, you know, you're doing... He's like, I remember he said, it's easy to build a three block pyramid and then climb to the top of the three block pyramid and like proclaim yourself victorious. And he says, you are doing deep inner work and you are really building a strong foundation. And that's how he like framed it up for me. So I was like, I know. So I, I went along with it and Saturday there was more, you know, just more teachings. And then this is the, the secret thing that we're all vowed never to tell anyone about. So the Kodoshka teaches that there are eight or nine different genital anatomy types. And they're named after like animals, like fox, deer, antelope, cat. It's depending on like the shape of your genitals. And there's for women and there's for men. And so they give this whole teaching on how like each anatomy type will like receive pleasure differently and we'll have different personalities. And so then they divide the women and the men up into two rooms and all the women go with the women teachers and all the men go with the men's teachers. And then they're going to type us. So we all, you know, we're wearing sarongs and one by one, we, you know, we sit on the cushion and they give us a mirror to look at ourselves and then we're spreading our legs and everyone's gathering around. And then they're asking us questions about like, well, where's your G-spot? And how long does it take you to have an orgasm? And, you know, what kind of things do you like? And do are, do, are you loud when you have an orgasm? Are you quiet? Like they're asking all these questions and then they'll say, okay, you are a fox woman or you are a dancing woman. And I remember this Amara telling us about how mothers and daughter, like, she's like, we've had mothers and daughters come to these things together. And it's like really interesting for them to see how they're different types, even though the daughter came from the mother and, um, this will be relevant later, but I just was like, oh, okay. So a mom and a daughter can come to this together. Okay. There was also two sisters at this first workshop. I was there together. So I was like, okay, so I guess it's not weird to do these things in front of your family members. So then after the end of the typing, But then we're told that we're going to have a very special ceremony with all the men and women in one group. And one by one, we're going to come up and we're going to reveal ourselves to the group and claim, my name is so-and-so and I am a fox woman or I am a cat woman. And what I love about being a fox woman is, and then you say what you love about being a fox woman. And so we're like, okay, we're all going to do this. I think usually the men go first because they're like the protectors. And then after the men go, the women go and there's a chair and we literally sit on the chair in front of like 30 people and we spread our legs and we spread our labia open so they can get a really good look. And then we say our name and what type we are and what we love about being that type that we just learned about. 30 minutes ago. And then we have to make eye contact with every single person in the room. So this is like an hour and a half and it's like very somber. They like smudge us in. And I mean, it's like everything is done in this very like guided, guided way. So we get through the ceremony and then at the end of the ceremony, that's when they ask us to make a vow of secrecy. And they're very emphatic about this. At a different Kodoshka workshop, I mean, I remember Amara almost snapped at us and she just said, do not tell anyone about this ceremony because we have been told that people have chosen not to come to Kodoshka because they heard about this ceremony and we all know, like, wasn't this an amazing, beautiful healing experience? They don't understand the context.
0: Got it. Oh, so induction of guilt, right? That you're going to be then keeping people. From being able to have this wonderful experience, if you tell it to people and then they get turned off by the idea, Ugh, what a manipulation. Okay. And ultimately, really, they don't want people to know about this because people would say, what? <laughs> what? What the hell is that? Okay. So interesting. So they found a way to keep people quiet that is somehow going to make sense for people and is going to feel like then you're doing the right thing by keeping it private. Yeah. Before we move on, I'm curious, a lot of people talk about being in these kinds of situations and dissociating. They just find another place to go because they don't have a choice. They have like signed up for this and they're already this far into it. And they don't want to be the only one to get up and go because they probably know how that's going to be received. So what was going on for you internally while this was happening emotionally?
1: I think I was really dissociated. I think I was in a freeze response um, most of the time. I ended up doing about nine or 10 or 11 of these total. I only did a couple with Brett. And so when he was with me, I felt safer because you know I trusted him and he cared for me. But yeah, I felt very dissociated. I felt very confused. I was not having a good time. I mean, I remember it being really, really hard really hard. I remember my body was numb most of the time. So there's a lot of other like breathing exercises they do. And so the whole room is just like moaning and like orgasming and stuff like that. And I'm just feel frozen. And so again, something's wrong with me. (sighs) Like that's what I kept thinking. And so then, you know, I ended up going to one of the teacher's and just said hey i'm i'm not having a good time and it's always like okay well what's your problem oh okay well this next exercise is going to address that it just kind of reinforced that there was like i felt like there was something wrong with me i felt like i was damaged beyond repair
0: Right. Which is sometimes the answer to the question, if you get asked, why did you keep going back? If you had to dissociate in order to make it through it, if you do take on this idea that you now have more proof that there's more you need to work through and they then have the next phase that you can go to that will help you with that, it makes sense when you lay it out that way that, you know, there's a reason that you kept doing it. But interesting that you were there with Brett and so what was his response to all of this to participating in this?
1: He was involved and came only because of me. You know, like I said we we've, we've only recently now started talking about that. I mean, there's I can't even name you any particular experience, but like I I know we just don't have time to talk a lot about Silver, but a, a lot of my grooming happened at his center, grooming me to think he was the teacher and that he's the wise one and he kind of was part of Brett's in my relationship for a long, I mean, not like part of our relationship, but he was like always there, like guiding our relationship. So I just felt like I, I kind of feel like I had all my grooming at his place and it became very controlling later when I wanted to stop going to his classes. He became very angry with me. And actually I felt like was trying to break Brett and I up. Brett's response was, um, just to support me. And sometimes he would actually protest and he'd be like, I don't want you going to this. Or, you know, the last one I came home from, I was in such a horrible PTSD state. I mean, like I was crying and just, I was yelling at him, you know, I was so, I was just so Mm -hmm. out of my mind. This happened Mm -hmm. in, um, January, 2020 was the very last one I went. I was an assistant. And I, I remember he finally put his foot, he's like, you're not doing this anymore. You know? And I was like this independent, you know, before I, for so many years is like, you can't tell me what to do. And he just stayed by my side through it all. But I remember that last one, he's like, you're not doing this anymore. Yeah. I'm really, really lucky. I mean, our marriage is one of the wonderful things that came from this experience (laughs) and, um, we both got out together. So I hear that can be rare,
0: yeah, it is rare, all too rare. You know, I know there's so much, and I know we're we're skipping over silver and and but it, it, even if there is an example or two that you want to give of that grooming, you're welcome to to do that. I also know that you said that there when when you were talking about families doing this together, that you wanted to come back to that. So I made a note of that. So take this wherever you want it to go,
1: okay. yeah, I definitely want to talk about the family aspect of yeah. this. okay cool. So, um, I kind of gave you the juice of the Kodoshka. They do this whole Dom submissive lover's mask on Saturday night, which is just, I don't know a lot about that community, but from a few people I've talked to, it takes more than like a 30 minute teaching to actually be able to navigate that space in a really consensual and safe way. So, anyways, what's really interesting is I walked away from that first Kodoshka determined to be a Kodoshka teacher. To this day, I have no idea except. Or I think I thought that if I could actually be a Kodoshka teacher, then that would mean I've healed and that I just was sold, even though I didn't feel like it was working for me, I was sold. I believed them. I believed them when they said that they're, like every single person on the planet should do a Kodoshka. This is the healing our planet needs. This is the answer. And I just took it on as this personal mission, like almost as like the sacrificial lamb or something. I left the Kodoshka and I decided to ask Amara Charles to be my apprentice guide. In the Deer Tribe, if you want to be an informal member, you have to find a person who's of a certain rank called Sacred Pipe Carrier. And they are your apprentice guide and they are like your main teacher and they guide you. So I asked her to be my teacher. And I kind of felt like she sort of targeted me because in the middle of Kudoshka, she came up to me and was like all fawning all over me and was like, Hey, would you like to do a Kudoshka in Denton? Like, would you help me organize one? And I mean, I was like fangirling her. I was like, Oh my God, she wants me to help her organize a Kodoshka. So I said, yes. And she became my apprentice guide. And then I ended up being her assistant off and on for many years. So like, she became a very central force in my life. We organized a Kodoshka in Denton, Texas, and I invited my mother because I wanted her to have this healing. And I, for some reason, just the way it was presented, I thought that this could even help our relationship. Like, cause we, we had gone years without talking to each other. And then once I started going to the sweat lodges, you know, Silver was teaching me about forgiveness and not holding grudges. So I was like, oh, I need to forgive my mom. I didn't realize that I could forgive her, but still not let her in my life. I didn't, I didn't know that was an option at the time. So I let the staff know, like I was kind of in charge of registrations. They say they interview everyone who attends But I later found out when I started working for Amara, you know, she said, oh, we just put, we just say that. So people don't think we just let anyone in, but they don't, they don't really interview everyone. So I let them know, you know, okay, great. These are the people who are coming. This is my mom. Didn't blink an eye. So I've told you about the explicit nature of Kodoshka. So going through that with your parent, like anyone I feel like a normal response would be like ew, right? Like, I don't want to be doing in that environment with my parent. But on top of that, you know, my mom, I mean, I she was so covertly sexually abusive and mentally abusive to me that I just like that experience was even worse to like look over, like to be like, we're all in a, like these exercises, some of the, they send us into exercises where you can literally do anything you want. So Brad and I are here and 10 feet away is my mother giving a stranger oral sex.
0: Okay. And that she was open to doing it.
1: Yeah. I mean, she was open to doing it, but she's just, I feel like they failed her too because she If she has mental illness, she's definitely a sexual trauma survivor. I know that we have incest going back in my family to the 1800s. She should not have been in that environment. And I don't even think she knew what's appropriate or the things she did in front of me. Like my parents would have sex in front of like in the bed. Like they would put me to sleep in their bed when I'm four years old and they would have sex. And I would wake up and I would realize what was going on because they had shown me so much. I mean, my mom told us about, she kind of treated me as her therapist. So like from a very young age, I was made aware of all of her sexual problems with my father. I remember in high school, she had been molesting my brother and he became very angry when we were teenagers. And I remember that she would sit on a couch and she would be wearing a skirt with no underwear and she would spread her legs when he walked by, or like she would have her breasts out and things like that. So I don't even know if I need to justify why that was traumatizing for me. No, no, you don't, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um. And um, I remember when it ended. So this was the second one I went to, when it ended, I was really going into a PTSD response and we were all kind of hanging out in one of the apartments. And I remember, you know, Amara was all like ready to be in party mode, you know, and here I am just like this. I was also pregnant at the time. The next day when I was driving her to the airport, she gave me a little lecture on how unattractive I was being the night before. How
0: unattractive you were being. She
1: was mimicking my body language to me. Huh? And she just says, you know, that's very unattractive. And she was like trying to give me this teaching on how to be this like more, I guess, open or likable woman. Having, yeah, I
0: guess post-traumatic stress reactions are not attractive.
1: None of these trainers have any type of trauma awareness and, um, you know, that's how they were taught. I mean, this is a completely fabricated sexual system. It's made up and they're all self-trained. So I ended up um, doing three Kodoshkas with my mother present. I organized two more to come back. So there's four levels. And so we did another level one and my mom came and worked on, st- on logistics. And then we did them once a year. And so then the the third one was the level two. And I remember... Telling Amara, because by that time, my mom, you know, and Amara were, I guess, um, you know, my mom liked to get things for free. So she was like, oh, I want to come. This is how they get people on their staff. You volunteer, you know, the staff aren't paid. So my mom wanted to come and I told her, because I was, I didn't remember a lot of the traumas at that time. And all of these memories were starting to resurface. And I, you know, there's been CPS investigations into my mom. And it's like, I had blocked all of that out. And even though it happened when I was in my twenties, it just was not, I just chose to forget. And then I was just remembering. And I remember telling her, I said, I really don't feel comfortable doing this with my mother. And she's like, okay, well, I'm going to invite her anyways. And then the male teacher, Michael Stein gave me this pep talk because apparently he and his son had done Kudoshkas together. And he said, you know, I was by this point point an assistant that they call, we, we were called neophytes. So we're unpaid trainers and we just, do a lot of labor and we do all their demos. So I was going to be doing a lot of sexual demos. And I was really, I said, I don't want to do that with my mom in the room. And he just said, look, it's going to be so amazing for your mom to see you and you're shining. And that was like his pep talk. And um, that cue was really, we, we call him cute. That that Kodoshka was really traumatic for A lot of people, I started speaking out publicly to my community and on Facebook a few months ago. That's as public as I got. And I've had so many people message me. And there is this one woman who was at that Kwadoshka too. And her first message was, What made you realize the Kudoshkas are exploitative? And we started talking. And she just said, I remember, you know, just, just story after story of things happening. There was a, a person on staff who like verbally attacked a woman. And the, the teachers just let it go on and on. And um, I remember one of the women who were on the staff, so she was a volunteer and very sweet girl. Staff are often asked to jump in as partners when there's an unequal male-female ratio. So we had a lot of extra men. So this young woman was was asked, will you step in on this exercise? And she said, yes. And Amara guided us through this like erotic massage And where you slowly like take your clothes off and then like touch, you know, you, you do this erotic massage with each other. So this woman, I'll just call her Becca. She was with this man, a lot older than her. And all she did is she just sat there and they held hands for the 45 minutes or an hour or whatever it was. And I could tell she was extremely uncomfortable, but I was so, I just so admire her because it is really hard to go against the group in these environments. And she did that. She didn't take off her clothes, she didn't she didn't do that. She sat with this man. And I could see I could tell it was so hard for her. And I remember later after the exercise and Mara comes back to she was staying with us and she was livid. She was so mad. And this man was fine. And like cuz we we all talk about it and he just said, "Oh, I I was so happy just to sit and like Hold space with this like beautiful woman. Like I don't feel like I missed out on anything. So when people ask me like why did you just do all these things, it's like one woman went against what Amara wanted her to do, and I saw like the wrath of Amara, and I was afraid of her. I mean, I wanted her approval. I put her on a pedestal. I mean, I own. I I acknowledge all of that. But like I wanted to be like I wanted her to like me and want me in her life and want me in her inner circle. So I was just willing to listen to her over myself for the seven or eight years that we were in this kind of relationship together.
0: I can't tell you how many people I've talked to who said that what became more important than anything else was pleasing the person in charge and that the teachings sometimes even fell by the wayside. Things didn't quite make sense anymore. They weren't feeling like they were really getting help, but they felt so satisfied when the person who was hard to please was pleased by them. There is something about this intermittent gratification that happens between a leader and a follower when you have someone who you know, if you kind of sacrifice your comfort for them. If you're willing to do what they tell you to do, they're proud of you. They use you as a shining example. They might greet you more warmly. You get to spend more time with them, right? That, that all starts to matter and it should be what matters the least. And so here you have this other person, this woman who becomes this interesting model to you of strength, the person who's not willing to do what she's being pushed to do, even if she's going to get yelled at about it, or her partner's going to get yelled at about it, that they still held to their own parameters, their own boundaries and what they knew to be right. And that was not happening around you. And so it, it can feel like a revolutionary thing to do just to say, No, or no, thanks. And a lot of people too, don't realize how much behavior modification is true in these groups, because as you're seeing her sitting there, not listening to Amara, I bet you could predict how that was going to go and you're not going to want to be the one on Amara or anyone's hot seat who's in a position of authority but having that model of strength like the person who does that sit-down protest there are a lot of people who learn from that and they realize that that's possible but they wonder if they have it in them at that point and if they have the the courage or tenacity to be able to to do it it's such an interesting turning point
1: yeah i think i realized at that time that I needed to get out of the relationship with Amara because I could not stand up to her. I couldn't be myself around her. And I'm on this spiritual path that is all about individuality and like your true nature and like being your autonomous self. And I just, I like turned into this different person every time I was around her and I just didn't. And By the time I was becoming aware and actually becoming more empowered, the tone had been set in our relationship. You know, it was like, I felt like she kind of related to me in this like childlike way. Like I was definitely a subordinate and I did, you know, I did get it. You know, she has a partner named Shana and Shana and I became best friends. And I mean, it, it still hurts me today because it's like, I can't have a relationship with them at all. But I, you know, I traveled with them. I mean, she invited us into her home. She would be very generous, you know, at times. And I just felt like I was part of the cool crowd at school, but I started to realize like, this is not like, I knew this is not good. I just didn't know. I didn't even know how to have that conversation to say, Hey, I want a different apprentice guide. I was too afraid. And so it was easier for me to just stay as it was.
0: There's this idea of idea of like better the devil, you know, than the devil, you don't like here. This was not a great relationship, but you had already worked so hard to fortify yourself in her eyes and prove something. So it's not like you were going to be leaving that relationship anytime soon. And for what, for who else? So then what happened after and what led you to finally leave?
1: I ended up actually moving from Denton to Phoenix, Arizona, which is like their home base. And I ended up leaving Brett behind. It's another story, but I had Silver's control had gotten. So living at his center was just very hostile. It was a hostile environment for me. And he just, I felt like he was angry that I wasn't basically doing what he said. That's how he operates. And I was rebellious and I was getting bored. And so Brett was running a martial arts school there. So there was a lot of conflict going on between us and he I felt like silver was trying to break us up and my answer was to move to Phoenix because I thought okay I need it I've outgrown the ashram let's go to Phoenix and let's really like I'll be able to do kodoshka's more I'll be able to really excel and um, Brett wasn't ready to go so I left and thank God he followed me he, he came he came five months later. we spent about 18 months in Phoenix and it was just a nightmare. I just felt so repulsed by everything. There's so many other things I did besides Kodoshka and this organization. And it just started like, it just started feeling empty to me. And I started feeling really repulsed by it. And then they gave me a lot of practices that were also triggering my PTSD. And what ended up happening, I was taking a class and I met this, she'll be be okay if I use her name, but um, she's one of my best friends now. Her name is Robin and she was in a class with me and she had... She's actually a member of the Cherokee Nation. And so she had left the organization 20 years earlier when the American Indian movement was protesting it because they used to claim that Kodoshka came from the Cherokee teachings. And the Cherokee's like, we don't want anything to do with this. So Robin ended up going with AIM, but by chance she came back and we ended up in a class together. And she saw how they were treating me. She was just like the only person in my head going against everything they were saying like just undoing it because she would see how they would treat me and she'd be like, that's not okay. And like, I would call, so she just like kind of became this like big sister figure to me. She's, you know, 20 years older than me. And she saw, she was the first person in seven years that had a reaction when I told her I went to a Kudoshka with my mother. Like she was jaw dropped horrified. And she didn't tell me immediately because she's like, I didn't want to traumatize you even more by having this like, what you did, what, you know? But over the months, she just said, you know, she just would ask me like, do you feel like you ever got any healing at a Kodoshka? Like, Hey, you know, they should have never let you do that with your mom. And she just kept, I thought it was me. I thought it. I should have known better, but she said, no, they were the teachers. This is a hundred percent on them. A hundred percent. This is on them, not you. And she saw like, how not okay I was. And so she encouraged me. She's like, why don't you write a letter? It took me 18 months to write a letter with her just every now and then like, Hey, have you, you know, why don't you write a letter? And so it was almost a year to like a year ago in September, So last September, I wrote a letter and I typed it out and I printed it and I sent it through the USPS mail. I didn't even want this in an email. I didn't want anyone like I was so, I didn't want any, I didn't want this to get in the wrong hands. And the Deer Tribe has something called the Council of Law, which is a group of people that is kind of like our justice system. So basically they exist to give the, a voice to the apprentice. So you have an issue that you can't resolve with your apprentice guide. You have a right to take it to the Council of Law. So I addressed this as an open letter to the Council of Law. And I didn't know how, like I sent it to the center. And so I, I addressed it to the Council of Law. And then I wrote, attention, Yannicka Cool and Mary Minor, who were two of the leaders there. People I at the time thought I could trust. I was like, they will make sure, like when they find, they're gonna make sure something happens and they will get my letter to the council. I get an email back from Yannicka, who by the way is just a beloved person in this community, absolutely beloved. She says all the right things and she says, We're we're gonna look into this. And then a couple months later, I get an email from Diane Knightbird, who was the the lead, the, the original cult leader. Um died in 2013. This is his wife. So she's kind of the new leader. And she basically says, We did an investigation, completed it. Thank you for your giveaway as an apprentice. And that was it. And I was like, okay. So I tried to move on. And then in March of this year, I found out that two former two leaders left the organization. And they both sat on the council of law. I was forwarded an email that they wrote to their group about why they're leaving and all of the ethical things and like integrity, all of these issues, they didn't name specific things, but like, we cannot be a part of this organization anymore. This this is so out of integrity. And I sent them an email and I said, Hey, I'm just curious if you ever saw my letter. And that's when I found out that they never gave my letter to the council of law. So I was just oh my gosh, I was so terrified and so afraid, but they actually encouraged me to speak out about it. I was so afraid. They were so loving. I mean, they've just wrote how horrified they were, how impacted, like this should never happen to anyone. And I just was crying because I had been trying to find someone in this community for seven years that everyone always made it about like my personal emotional issue, my karma. I called this in. And so with their... Support, I actually emailed a copy to the entire Council of Law and I copied the emails from Yannicka and Diane Nightbird to show. So then long story short, I'm, I have ceased communication with them, but now they're taking action and now they've developed a committee, but it's completely internal and they're doing an internal investigation. And like the committee is like made up of all the Kuroshka teachers. So like they have a Kuroshka committee to oversee the Kuroshka teachers and they're like developing a complaint process and I just don't trust them. And so that's actually why I'm speaking out because, you know, you go to their webs- website and they say their values among their seven or eight values is honesty and transparency. And um, that's clearly not the case here. And I I just really feel like people have a right to know. I feel like my community has a right to know the real reason why I left. And I just really, really hope that people who may be listening to this, who have had bad experiences in Kodoshka know like it wasn't their fault, that they hopefully they can let go or just find the healing that it took me so long to find because I kept blaming myself and then hopefully to warn others, just to think really long and hard before you, you know, entrust your, your sexual healing to people because this is not what they make it out to be.
0: Okay. So um, I'm so happy for so many reasons now, even more so uh, after you're, You told that part of the story that you are talking about this, that you know that you can. It does often happen that the ethics board, the complaint board, the process of justice within groups that are unhealthy really are to keep the information in-house and to make sure that the person who complains is seen as the issue or that they find a way to just make it go away. If there is a governing body that's outside of the organization, then you have the potential. It's not guaranteed, but you have the potential for there to be justice. But in-house, rarely, if ever, is that going to happen. And usually the people who are given the task of keeping track of things and being the one to monitor, are they're working for the company you know? So what I think is also interesting is that then you took that and the response and you added it into your next wave of letting people know what happened, whether or not that goes anywhere or does anything. The important thing in that is that you did it, that you said, okay, no, now I have all this other evidence that shows that there was subterfuge, that I, that things were hidden, that it, my information was kept from the people it was supposed to go to, that it wasn't taken seriously. There wasn't an investigation. All of it was BS. So I am actually going to pursue it to show myself that I can, but also I think to show them I'm not afraid and I'm not just going to take this sitting down and I'm not just going to go away so fast. and. I really like that you were able to find out that people left and that you could be in touch with them and that they could confirm that they never saw your letter, which is also extremely common. I mean, so many people within cultic systems, even the leadership, if they're not at the very top, even the leadership is often kept in the dark. And they're left feeling guilty that they led people, that they taught people, that they recruited people, but they also often only had part of the information and not all of it. Now that you get to talk about it, You get to say so many really important things about what happened. But I guess as we're finishing up, I would want you to be able to talk about now, in retrospect, the things that you noticed that you tried not to notice or that you felt like you needed to ignore in order to have a good experience. These are the things that you want to make sure people really take stock of, really notice and hold on to as evidence of there being danger here or the potential for danger here. So what are some of those things as you think back that you would want people to really watch out for?
1: I would say pay attention when you you know, when you learn about a a group or an event and you actually do go and search online and the word cult comes up, actually ask questions. You know, I think the thing that I felt like we were so discouraged from actually questioning anything, anything critical that like, Hey, I read this piece of critical information. It just was like, that was attacked. There was no actual logical or reasonable explanation given. And so you know, I think that it comes like for me is just really trusting, like trusting yourself when something feels off, it probably is off. You know, you have a right to ask questions, you have a right to know details. Like if you're going to go to a workshop, you have a right to know what are the activities that are going to be happening? What's going to be expected of me? You know, am I going to be like, they do a lot of upselling, you know, are you going to try to sell me on anything else? I think asking questions and doing, doing the research is just so important when there's secrecy, you know, when they, when they start talking about secrecy, you get, uh, around teachings or, specific exercises. That's a really big red flag for me now.
0: Right. It, you know, it's the same. It's interesting as, as as sexual abuse or physical abuse that happens in the home that is shrouded in this secrecy or people are told to keep it secret, you know, having a, a home life where there were these secrets going into an adult space where there are secrets, you're going to be so used to it. But now I think you're going to be very allergic to it uh, and you're question is going to be, why? Why do I have to keep that a secret? And also not accept their justification because you were given a justification, but it really uh, ultimately doesn't matter. What matters is that you always have the right to share what's happening to you no matter how much someone will try to use an angle to get you to feel like it's not okay i wonder also just about you you know going through this whole lifetime of self blame of self doubt you've had to fight against that in ways that you you know you're probably still grappling with but you've also probably learned ways of talking to yourself in those moments of automatic self doubt where you say well maybe not so fast maybe it's not me and so i wonder what you've learned to say to you where you don't just immediately think it's because of you
1: yeah i'm still working on that um i think my biggest victory is that i'm really i'm really learning to trust my body cuz i still have so much of their mental language in my head that i'm trying to clear out but like now i know is if i feel tense they always told me tension is oh you have a close you're closed off or you're not willing to engage, you know, but now I know when I'm tense, this is stop, you know, and when I feel relaxed in my body, then that tells me it's safe. And I think that's probably the biggest, my biggest victory that I have right now is really trusting that. Cause I, I ignored my body signals for so long.
0: Right. Yeah. I think people don't realize how much our bodies do talk to us. And a lot of people will say, oh no, I'm having a perfectly fine time. Meanwhile, they have an ice pack on their head because they have a searing headache or they, they've t- they're they they tightening their jaw or they're nauseous. Something's going on and your body is sometimes speaking volumes, but because yeah, you've learned to have these automatic blockages where you you think it's either your fault or you think you're supposed to be fine or be fine with being mistreated, I think also. Um, And so learning also how you deserve to be treated is a whole other challenge, but a really important thing. And it sounds like within your relationship, the fact that it's a healthy relationship, you get to test that out and you get to see how you are actually supposed to be treated. Yeah. That's really nice. That's really nice. So I'm so glad. I feel honored that you were telling your story for the first time here, that you also are at this place in your life where you know you can and that it's going to help so many people. I, I know that what happens when people do share stories like this, it resonates for people who have not only been in groups that are the same, but also groups similar to it or systems of other kinds that are similar If I do get feedback, as it often happens, I'll be happy to pass it along to you. And for people who have been harmed in some way, is there a resource you want to let people know about? Is there something happening, you know, that is in response, like either from the Native American community, if they're, you know, trying to keep tabs on this group and other groups like it that are kind of using teachings or abusing those kinds of teachings, um, or any other organizations that you think would be good for people to be aware of?
1: The website linked to the Deer Tribe is dtmms.org. Okay. And Kodoshka, um, which is a spelling in itself. I don't know if maybe you could put those in the show notes or something. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, we will. And then um, AmaraCharles.com, if you want to learn about her. They're kind of a, not that known, actually, these organizations. They've managed to stay under the radar, and they don't like having a social media presence. So. It's very low key. Yeah.
0: Well, not anymore.
1: Yeah, not anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right.
0: Well, it was really good to talk to you. And thank you so much. And I'm so glad that you're on this side of it that you know that you're out of these systems like one after the other after the other. And now you get to enjoy being able to relax, wake up and feel safe in the world. I'm so happy for you.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Of
0: course. Take care. Hope to talk to you again.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: One more thing before you go. Thank you so much to Heidi. I am so glad that she is free from this situation. I'm so glad she's getting to live her life now. She's getting to have a healthy relationship and also be able to be with someone where she is able to feel safe. She's able to uphold boundaries. She's able to be able to to be treated in the way that she deserves to be treated. She said so many things that I hear from so many people, but I really, really want to highlight some of the things that she said that she said so well. And I want to come back to them because I made notes as she was mentioning them. They're really salient points, really pivotal points. One of the things that she talked about was all of this phrasing the way that you're told, basically, like, you'll be happy if you want to, and that sort of idea that there's magic that can take place if you do things the way you're told to do them, if you follow what the leaders of this group tell you to do. One of these phrases that can seem innocuous and not really dangerous, but end up being dangerous, is this phrase, everything works if you do. Now, Someone could say that and you could pass right by that and not have a sense that it is destructive. But it is one of those phrases that for people who want to devote themselves to something can really drive them crazy. If you're told everything works if you do, so what does that mean? First of all, it doesn't mean anything. Okay, there's there's a problem right from the start. It doesn't mean anything. You ascribe meaning to things hoping that they mean something deep because they're usually said in a very deep way with a lot of seriousness or sincerity. But really, if you do work, then you do work. But it doesn't mean everything else is going to be working because you're doing work. There is this sense then that everything is connected. Everything is connected to you. That's very destructive. When people then come out of cultic groups like this, they really have a very hard time resting, resting their body, resting their mind. They have to keep working. They have to feel like they have to keep making everything work in their life and it's up to them to make everything happen in this magical way. So you don't give yourself a chance to rest. And also you blame yourself. You only have yourself to blame basically if things don't work and if things don't work out, which is also this false dilemma. It's a false equation. And you end up blaming yourself over and over and over again, and then pushing yourself harder to work harder, to work faster, to work more, to do the work. So I think when we look at these kinds of things, when we look at these kinds of phrases, you want to look at the absolute. You want to look at the way that it's phrased with the absolutes. Everything works if you do. Well, no. And so when you're presented with all or nothing statements, you want to be suspicious You want to wonder why they feel like they can say that. I would never say to someone, "Mm, if you keep coming back to therapy week after week, you will get better. I don't know that. I could do my best to make sure that they get better, but there could be things standing in the way. And I am not going to make a promise like that. I'm not going to give someone an absolute equation that they're going to have to take on and then again blame themselves if it doesn't work out in some magical way. Sometimes things just don't work out. And sometimes things just don't work. What is also important is that while she was being pushed to follow what they were telling her to do, to lower her defenses, to somehow tolerate being put in situations that were very uncomfortable or destructive, dangerous, she kept coming back. She kept coming back a lot because you get the feeling that everything works if you do. If you keep doing the work, then things will work. So that's another dangerous part of comments like that. Because you keep thinking if you just try harder, then everything will come together. But what she said is very important that along with her doing all this work, she said, I was on a slow decline for seven years. How much longer do you have to wait in order for things to work, in order to feel like you've done enough? How much longer do you have to be devoting yourself, be putting yourself in bad situations in order to somehow do the work, whatever that means also. That's an amorphous quote and phraseology doesn't mean really anything. It's defined different ways by different people. But also if the work means that you are putting yourself in a situation that's dangerous, well, why would that be considered the work? When someone, again, tells you this kind of phrase, you want to be able to get a definition. What are they talking about? What does that look like? What does that mean? How do they define work? But you also want to take a moment to step back while you're on this hamster wheel, while you're on this sense of, I have to keep going, I have to keep going in order to make it worth all this time and all this effort. When you're on a slow decline, which most people are in groups like this, they don't take time away to really look at that. And if they do see it, they have this automatic need to ignore it or to blame themselves or to work harder. It's like something that I've talked about in previous episodes, where if someone gives you a medicine to take and it starts to make you sick, you're not supposed to take more of it in order to feel better. That's not the way it works. If you take some medicine and it starts to make you feel sick, then you want to take a step away. And if somebody says, well, you just need to take more or you just need to come more often or you just need to be willing to do more things that are uncomfortable for you. No, you don't. You actually need to take a step away and wonder why they keep pushing you and wonder why they're keeping you from really addressing what's happening inside for you. If I, again, knew that someone was coming to see me and my style of working with them was actually making them feel more anxious or making them feel more depressed, I would shift the way I'm doing it with them. Or I would refer them to someone who is sort of a better partner in therapy for them for whatever reason or reasons. I wouldn't say, well, if I'm affecting you in a negative way, then you need to come back twice a week and three times a week and four times a week. I wouldn't say do more. But when someone says, ah, you have to just keep doing more of this, it's often because they don't have anything else to give you. They don't know what else to provide that's actually going to make you happy. This is all they got. And they can just keep blaming you and they can hope that they've ingrained in you that you blame you if it doesn't work out. That's crazy making. It's like being in a maze. You can't get out until you take a step away. So when you're on a slow decline, but you say to yourself, I need to keep coming back, notice those things are in conflict with each other. Don't ignore the decline. Don't ignore the discomfort. Don't ignore what's happening to you that's making you feel upset. Take a step away. Take a break. See if you feel better without it. You often will. Talk to you next week. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com slash indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at indoctrinationpodcast. And for Twitter, find us at, at underscore indoctrination. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. And for more updates on the show, visit our website at www dot, pod page dot com forward slash indoctrination.